calls the dead in Christ and lands on the earth. All right? He's preparing us a place in heaven so that when we leave this world, we will be with him. Right? That seven-year period that the, the tribulation is going on, the dead in Christ, those of us who are remain, will be changed and quickly taken to heaven. It makes no sense for the Lord to prepare a place for us, say he's going to come get us, and then not take us to the place that he said he was going to take us. All right? So that's just one of the reasons I believe the tribulation happens after the rapture. Okay? Why would he prepare a place, say he's going to come get us, to take us there, and then not? All right? John 14. But that word in the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 can mean a few different things. And I said this last week. One, it can mean the last of something. Or it can be something that signifies the end of something. And so what I believe when the trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ arise and those of us who remain are quickly changed, that is blowing the end of the church age. The church goes to heaven, right? We're no longer here. And for the next seven years, God turns his focus to who? Israel. And so that trumpet signifies our leaving, the dead getting their resurrected bodies, and the Lord turning his focus to Israel. Now, on top of that, I just want to point out a couple other things. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, those are both judgments about something amazing, right? Something hopeful for Christians, that we're going to be changed in the twinkling, in a nanosecond, that word means. And that word for uh, being called up is snatched. Literally, the Lord is jerking us from where we are to where he is. When we look at the trumpets in Revelation, they're all about what? Judgment. They're not hopeful for the Christian. They're not encouraging to the Christian. It's not a promise to the Christian. It is judgment. And so I believe that the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 is for the church, for the rapture. In Revelation, those are judgments on the world. And so that is why you can say at the last trump, right, when the Lord calls the church home, that is where we will be. Any questions about that? Okay. Well, like I said, always try to answer them. Not that I always can. And so if you remember, we are in Revelation chapter 14. And in Revelation chapter 14, we are getting this kind of this preview of how it's going to all unfold. If you remember in chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation, it was talking about Satan. It was talking about the woman who I believe is Israel. It was talking about how the dragon has tried to kill the child. And we looked at how even back into the days of Moses with trying to murder all of the children in the time of Herod where he tried to murder the Lord, and how he has always tried to persecute the Jewish people. And friends, if you have not turned your television on and watched what is going on in Israel today, it is, it is as clear as it could be. There is no reason 
other than it is a God-ordained piece of property that anyone should want it. There's no point. I mean, it's, it's a very small strip of land. They can get into the ocean without it. They can get across without it. It is not strategic or necessary in any shape, form, when you have Turkey and Egypt and all of these other countries. But yet, the false religion of Islam wants it. Wants it with everything they have. The nation of Russia, who is stretched out in the, in the frozen tundra, wants it. The European Union wants it. Everyone wants this little piece of property, and they hate the people on it. I've been watching the news and watching colleges where they're putting up pictures of the peoples who have been kidnapped. Just pictures of them. And college students are taking those pictures down, ripping them up, and saying those people got what they deserved. Friends, there is no possible way to explain the hatred to the Jewish people. Even when you think of slavery, slavery in uh, capturing other people usually wasn't about race, it was about profit. Right? They wanted to make money off of each other. It wasn't that they hated a specific race, it was that they were bred, they were treated, and they were profitable. But for the Jew, it's a hatred for who they are. Why is that? It is because the people that hate them are inspired by a fallen angel who hates God and hates his people. And so when we look at this here, and we were looking at how he had tried to destroy them and how he had tried to kill them, it's exactly like what we've seen. And we look at how bad it is now, but can you imagine from what we have seen what it will be like for the Jewish people in the tribulation period? This doesn't even hold a candle to how bad it's going to be when the Holy Spirit says, you know what, that protection's gone. It, it's, it's now time to get the Jews' attention so that they can believe in Christ. And we looked about how Satan was thrown out of heaven. We looked about how the dragon pursued Israel into the desert. And then we looked in chapter 13 about the Antichrist and the false prophet and how Satan will work during the tribulation period. And I keep hearing this all the time from people is what does it really matter? What does it matter if we believe what the book of Revelation says? Well, one, the Bible says there is a promise, a blessing for listening to it, for understanding it, and what? Applying it. But two, it should drive us to be evangelist, to be mission-minded. Because when this day comes, it is going to be terrible for the lost. And I believe, regardless of what anyone else says, that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of the whole world. And that whosoever will can come. I believe that. And I don't care how unpopular it is, that's the way I'm going to believe until the Lord calls me home, all right? I believe that. I believe that God loves sinners. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That he desires that all should come to knowledge of him. And so when we look at this, it should drive us to say, we need to tell as many people about Jesus as possible. Because when this comes, it's almost going to be hopeless. Right? Today is the day of salvation.
And so when you get into chapter 14, it's almost like God says, all right, you've seen all this, but I don't want you to forget that I'm still in control. I'm still in charge. And we look there at the 144,000 and that those are those 144,000 evangelists who cannot be killed. God gives them supernatural protection like Daniel. And they are going throughout the world preaching the gospel. And there's nothing that Satan can do to stop them. We looked at the last week in verses 6 through 13 that God's even going to use an angel flying through the sky to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Why? One more opportunity to believe. One more opportunity to turn from their wickedness. But on the flip side of that, it's also going to be something that hardens the heart of those who don't know him. How, how can this be? How can a loving God let the demons from hell be unleashed? How can the, the love of God let all of this bad stuff happen? And so for some, it will be that way of hope. But for others, it will be just a, a crystallization of their heart. But when we come to verse 14, we honestly get into the Lord pointing us to the judgment to come. He's like, I just want to give you a small taste of what we're going to see in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 21. Because when we jump back into chapter 15, we begin to look at all that's going to happen. And then in chapter 16, we're going to look at those last seven bowls. But in verse 14, if you will, and on your notes, it was the third point, that Christ will judge the wicked. I think it's very important, though, to see how he just sends an angel to preach. That one last opportunity, he's still reaching out, he's still reaching out, he's still reaching out, but then we have to know that there's going to be a point when God says, enough's enough. There is no more grace. There is no more mercy. Judgment's coming. And sometimes we forget about that as Christians, I believe, that Jesus preached about hell more than any other subject. Over and over and over again, he warned of that. And so look here in verse 14. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle to the earth, and the earth was reaped. What we see here is that Jesus is the one on the cloud and the angel is proclaiming what he's about to do. We've seen this through the book of Revelation, angels proclaiming what God is going to do. They are the messengers. And some people look at this verse and say, well, it's a time of good harvest. No, the church is gone. The Bible says that those who are called are dying. What he's saying is that God is going to judge the wicked on the earth. And you say, well, what about the judgment that comes with the wrath? Now he's going to be talking about what it's going to be like then forever. Listen to what it said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, 
Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus even asks them, who warns you about this? In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, if you flip over. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, if you were here Sunday night, and most of you usually are, you heard me talk about Romans just a little bit, about those who practice such things are going to face the wrath of God. But also those who condone, if you remember verse 32, will face the wrath of God. But here, it's not even those who condone it or those who practice it, but those who suppress it. Try to keep the truth from going out. And if you flip over there in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed, right? Who suppress the truth. Who try to deny that there is a God who brings judgment. Don't miss that. When someone says that God doesn't punish sin, when there is no hell, when there is no judgment, that God only loves, that's all He does, what this says is they're going to face the same wrath. The same wrath for those who practice it. Now, you all heard me say a few weeks ago, and some people have heard it online, and I'm not going to back down from it. If a pastor tells you there is no hell, well, all I can take from this is they cannot be a believer. Because what it says here is, if you suppress the truth that God is a God of love and wrath, a God of grace and mercy, but also judgment, what does it say? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against who? All. All of these people. He says God takes saving people seriously. And if you and I get in the way of telling people that they are a sinner, that they are called hell, but there is a God who loves them and died for them and can save them and can forgive them, friends, that is serious business. And so when you see these churches and these mainline denominations that have gotten so liberal, right, like the, the Presbyterian Church and the Methodist Church and the Episcopalian Church and, and God is all love and, and God, God doesn't care about sexuality and God doesn't care about sin. God just, God just wants you. What this says is they have brought the judgment of God on them. That's why those churches are dying. That's why those churches are dwindling up into nothing. Because why? God doesn't bless unrighteousness. He doesn't bless condoning unrighteousness. And He doesn't bless suppressing the truth about unrighteousness. Questions? Thoughts? Alright. Well, look at the book of Joel because... We are looking here at the wrath of God during the tribulation, okay? This is a different thing. God does pour out His wrath sometimes now, but nothing like it will during this seven-year period. In Joel chapter 3, listen to what it talks about, about a day in the future. 
Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the... Now I could have swore we just read something about a sickle. For the harvest is... Right. Now I, I'm not a real big Bible scholar, but I could have swore that's exactly what it said in verse 15. Thus thrust your sickle and reap, for the time has come... For you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. We're looking at what Joel prophesied right here. And it goes on and says, for their wickedness is great, in verse 13. We can look in verse 14 too. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. What is that decision talking about? To rebel against God. Just like at the Tower of Babel. They made a decision to build a tower to God. When they all come against the Lord at the Battle of Armageddon, it's a decision they make. It goes on and says, The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. If you remember, just stop with me if you'd like to. Go back to chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. There he is, proclaiming, I am going to destroy the wicked. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but don't miss this. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people. And the strength of the children of Israel. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 14. We saw that he was on Mount Zion, but look at the second part. And with him, 144,000. His people who have survived the tribulation period, who have been protected by God, there they stand, watching God getting ready to destroy his enemies. And you say, well, Jay, it's just in the book of Revelation. We just read that from where? The book of Joel. An Old Testament prophecy that God has to fulfill. I don't, I don't think you and I sometimes remember this as much as we should. If God leaves one unfulfilled, he's not a promise keeper. And if he's not a promise keeper, then everything we're trusting in is not what? Not promised. And so every promise that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, whether it's in Joel or Zechariah or in Isaiah, will come. To pass. Questions? I feel like I'm just rambling. I'm so excited. <laughs> so. Alright, let's look at some of these other passages about this to show you. Because what you'll hear from people is, so I believe that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. It is a book of symbolism. But it is also a book that should be read literally when you can. It's not something that's already happened. It is a prophecy of the future. And so when people say, well, the book of Revelation, you can't take what you believe from that book only. Hopefully you've noticed I've tried to prove it from where? The rest of the Bible, even though I believe Revelation is enough, okay? If it's in Revelation, it's good enough for me, all right? But I want you to know what you believe and why. So in Matthew chapter 13, let both grow together until the harvest. 
And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Well, the wheat have been gathered right through the rapture, through the fact that they have been protected. Those that have been saved during the tribulation are most likely going to lose their life. They are going to be with the Lord. But those who don't know him, what does it say? It's time. In Matthew chapter 13, listen to what it says. So it will be at the end of the age, all right, at the end of time, when the end of the tribulation period is unfolding. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of the fire. And there will be wailing and the gnashing of teeth. So this idea that God is going to judge the wicked is everywhere. That he is going to punish unrighteousness is everywhere. But this isn't even the worst judgment we see in this chapter. Because look what it goes on to say in verses 17 through 20. Then another angel came out of heaven, came out of the temple, excuse me, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had the power over fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine on the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 100, for 1,600 furlongs. Now, just to slow down here, all right, you're thinking, man, this chapter is terrible. Don't forget, he spent the first part of this chapter reminding us of what? The hope that we have as believers being in heaven, as the hope that those who have the 144,000 have. He spent verses 6 through 13 sending an angel to preach the gospel. All right? Everything has been about mercy, 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 protection, salvation. And then he says judgment comes to the earth through, I believe, the seven bowls, right? You look there in chapter 16. The sores and the blood and the waters turn to blood and the men are scourged and darkness and pain. I believe it is explaining those in this first judgment. But what verses 17 through 20 are explaining is what I believe is the battle of Armageddon. And you can flip over to chapter 19 with me if you want to read that. And starting at verse 17, it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their army, 
gathered together to make war against him who sat on on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And don't miss verse 21. And the rest. We're talking about the entire armies of the world. Probably hundreds of millions marching around Israel. And what does it say? All the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. You say, what does that have to do with chapter 14? God is giving us just a little picture of that. When it says there in verse 20, that blood will be as high as a horse's bridle. That is somewhere between four and five feet. And it will be that for 1,600 1, furlongs. If you were to look at Israel, if you were to look at Israel, it would be a massive lake covering a large Spot. Five feet, huh? 200 miles. 200 miles. Five feet deep, full of blood. Jesus. We do not read this excitedly. We do not read this with joy. We don't read this celebrating, even though we should, because Jesus wins. But the amount of death, heartache, and pain in this chapter is overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming. And you say, Jake, why is this given to us here? To remind us. To remind us who are not going to be here that we should want no one to live through this. But if you have got saved during the tribulation period and you've watched your saved family and friends die for their faith, you've watched the two witnesses be murdered and then go to heaven, and you're looking around thinking, is there any hope at all? God says, I'm going to get them all. I'm going to win. And so when you read this and I read this tonight, I believe it's literal. I believe Jesus coming back is a literal event. I do not believe it's figurative. I do not believe it's imaginative. I believe that when Jesus comes back at the end of the seven-year period, he is not coming in mercy. He's not coming in grace. He is coming in judgment. And for seven years, the world has hated him, rebelled against him, followed the Antichrist, taken the mark of the beast, but yet, up until the very end, he's still presenting the gospel. It, it blows my mind. I don't have that kind of mercy. I mean, I literally watch the news and at least once a day say, Lord, if you just smite that one, if you just smite that one, if you just smite that one, 
And here God is. If you want to flip back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. Because Paul writes about this time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now let's go to chapter 2. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We can go back to the first one in a minute. Verses 1 through 10. If you remember, the first book, what had happened was, people had came to the church at Thessalonica and were saying, you missed the rapture. You missed it. You did something wrong. You have failed God in some way. And so Paul writes that letter to remind them that no, you didn't miss the rapture. The Lord hasn't come back yet. Don't, don't believe this lie. You're okay. All right. But in chapter 2, in, in 2 Thessalonians, they were still struggling with the same thing. Whoever it was was still telling them, you've missed the rapture. You've missed God's blessing. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians with the same intent, but he gives them more information. He says, it's not going to happen until chapter 2. And then he describes what it's going to look like. And I just want to read this for a second because I want us to see the mercy that God has during this time. Starting in verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. He stops and says, I've told you this, but I want you to know exactly what I'm talking about. The fact that Jesus is coming again and He's going to gather us to Himself. Alright, that is the what? The rapture, all right? We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble. He says, do not let Satan put that lie in your mind. It goes on and says, either by spirit or by word or by letter. So, some people were saying, I've got a word from the Lord. They were under demonic influence. Some we're saying they had a word from the Lord. Right? Paul addressed that in 1 Corinthians. And some had even made up letters probably from Paul and put his name on it most likely and said, see, Paul wrote it. Paul says, no, no, no. I didn't write that junk. I didn't say that junk. It's not from me. As it is from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. He is just again saying, please don't believe the lie. Don't believe it. For that day will not come unless. Now it's not saying that God is waiting for the falling away to happen for him to respond. No. It's saying that there is going to be a falling away before God comes. All right. God's timetable is his own, all right? He does not base his timetable based on our wickedness, okay? The falling away comes first. There's going to be a great apostasy. Are we seeing some of it? Yes. But nothing like what we will. The son of perdition, that is the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
And that's that three and a half year point in the tribulation period, right? Where he rises up and says, I want to be worshipped is the abomination of desolation, okay? But he's already going to be working at the beginning of the tribulation, all right? So don't miss that. When, the, when he begins to work, when he begins to move, you need to know that the rapture is near, all right? Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He's like, I'm trying to remind you again. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And that's where we've been talking about that confusion about is the Holy Spirit still at work? Is he still even here? Is he in heaven? I believe he is still on the earth, still saving people, but his stopping wickedness is gone, right? If you want to murder a person in the street, there will be nothing to stop you, right? If you want to mutilate someone, nothing will stop you. The Spirit is going to say you are given over to your reprobate mind, all right? He goes on and says, if I can find that where we were, Oh, where were we there? Oh, where's that? Thank you. And then the lawlessness will be revealed. All right? Don't miss that. He is going to be revealed. All right? Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. What is the brightness of his coming? Revelation chapter 19. He's coming on a white horse. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Don't miss that. He says even though the Antichrist is going to be working, even though wickedness is going to abound, even though these things are going to be terrible because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. He says, I'm still offering it. And he doesn't just call it the truth, does he? He calls it the love of the truth. The love of the gospel that God has for them. It's one of the strongest terms that you can use for the gospel. The love of the truth. The truth is that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again. And if you'll repent of your sins and call upon him, you shall be saved. Right? That's the truth. But what drove the truth? Love. God is no greater love hath a man who laid down his life for another. So he's showing us here that the love of the truth was offered because what does it say? Because they did not receive, right? You can't not receive something if it wasn't first what? Offered, right? I could buy my kids their Christmas presents, forget them in the closet, which we have done, and they have no choice whether to receive them or reject them. Never about the opportunity. It's happened. But I can tell you, when that gift comes out and we offer it to them, then they accept it. They receive it. And so what it says here is, those who perish because they did not receive the love 
that was shown to them through Jesus Christ on the cross. But don't miss, he even adds something to it, that they might be saved. <laughs> he doesn't just say that they rejected it. He said they rejected it, but they could have been saved. So for me, that makes it abundantly clear that God didn't just pick Bob to go to heaven and didn't pick Lucas. He didn't pick Craig, skip over Bonnie. He says it was offered. They could have what? Received it, and they could have been saved. I'm not a smart man. I'm just walking you through what it says. And for this reason, because they have said no. All right, don't miss that. Because they said no to the truth, no to the love of God, no to being saved. They made that choice. Don't miss that. Because of that, what comes next? And for this reason, don't miss that. Listen, if God takes me home tonight, this is what I want you to hear. It doesn't say that God sent them these delusions so they would not be saved. It doesn't say that, does it? It says because they have refused to receive the love of the truth and be saved. They made a choice to reject. God did something. God will send them strong delusions that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned. But, but don't miss this. Right? You don't believe you're condemned. Makes sense. <clears throat> but what does Paul say after that? This is very important. Who did not believe? He goes back and says, but don't you think for one minute that God just condemned them for no reason? It was because they did not believe. He started with, if you don't believe and you reject the truth during the tribulation period, God's going to say, okay, I'm going to give you over to that. But it's not because that's what I wanted. It's not even because what I forced you to. He then once again says what? Because you did not believe the truth. But had pleasure in unrighteousness. They loved their self. They loved their sin. They loved their wickedness. And said, I don't want a savior. I don't want forgiveness. I don't want what God is offering. And God says, then that's what you're going to get. But even throughout all of this, don't miss, this is what I love it so much. In chapter 14, we went through this whole seven-year period almost. People have refused. People have rejected. People have not believed. But yet God sends an angel into the midst of heaven in verse 6 having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice. I like that, because I don't know what you would expect an angel to be saying flying through the heavens. Believe. <laughs> no. I fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of his judgment has come. He says one more time, this is it. 
This is all you're going to get in verse 6 and 7. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the spring and the seas of water. By the end of this six years, I'd have just judged us. I would not have offered again. I'd have said, you believe the lie. You've embraced the lie. This is what you got. Some people say, well, Jake, why do you believe that? This is what I believe. You can take it for what it's worth. You can, I don't care. I believe the worst thing about spending an eternity away from God in hell. It's not the fire. It's not the darkness. It is knowing that a perfect, righteous, holy God loved you died for you, sent his spirit to convict you, and you refused. And when the rich man in Lazarus died, when he was talking to Abraham, after he got through worried about the water and all that, what did he say? Send someone to my brothers. Why? Because they would spend eternity where he was and they didn't have to. And they didn't have to. And so as a church, I do not believe we're going to be here for this. All right? And there's nothing you can say that convinces me that we're going to be here. All right? I believe the rapture happens and I'm going to be in heaven. All right? But until that day comes, we have to love lost people. Want to share the gospel with them want to be involved in their life. I uh, do a little bit of substitute teaching and uh, I don't do it for the minimum wage, alright? That's literally what it is, minimum wage. I don't do it because I educate them. I pretty much just waste the day when I'm there from their education standpoint. But I do it because I am trying to build a relationship with them and when that young man was killed a few weeks ago, I got a call from the principal asking, Jake, the kids know you. They've seen you. Would you come spend the day with us? That's why. Because you never know what you're doing with your relationships. Now, do I sub all the time? No. <laughs> do I want to sub all the time? No. Alright? <laughs> no. But the world should see us trying to love them and care about them if we really believe in a place called hell and that people are going to spend an eternity there 